Lord, as we approach you this morning, we come with a sense of awe, seeking you, seeking that which it is that you have to share with us today. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes, open our ears, that we might see and hear and feel and touch you. In Jesus' name, amen. Next Sunday during the 10 o'clock hour, we'll have a children's Christmas program. I can pretty much guarantee you there will be one part that has not been cast. And I say that because I have never, ever seen a children's Christmas program that had this character in it, in spite of the fact that this is a really key character when it comes to Christmas. So when we do the Christmas programs, there's always a part for Mary and Joseph, there's always a part for shepherds and the angels and the wise men and the cows and the sheep and the donkeys. And sometimes we even sneak in the little drummer boy, even though his story is not in the Gospels. But no one ever gets cast in the Christmas pageant as John the Baptist. Wouldn't that be a great part? Camel skin jacket, eating bugs and honey in the Christmas program. You might be asking yourself, why don't we have John the Baptist in the Christmas program? In fact, you might be wondering why we're looking at John the Baptist two weeks in a row as we prepare for Christmas. Well, it's pretty simple. As I mentioned three weeks ago, uh, the series that we are in, Mending Christmas, follows the lectionary readings from the Gospel of Luke. These are passages that have been written read in churches for centuries, and all of these readings <coughs> can be summarized with one word. The one word is expectation. Expectation. Christmas is a season of expectation. If you don't think so, let me take you back about 50 years. Boy, has it been that long? I guess. Do you remember what it was like growing up in the 1960s, late 50s, early 60s? Some of you, I'm not talking to, you know, young kiddos, some of the older people today. In your house, you probably put up that tree sometime after Thanksgiving, and it was such a beautiful tree. It was a classic 1960s era tree. It had those really big round glass ornaments on it. And it had those big honking Christmas lights that were as big as a pine cone with those big bulbs. And when you were all done with your tree, you probably draped those skinny little silver icicles over all of those branches, but none on the lower limbs because you didn't want the cat to eat them. <laughs> then after you finally put the star or the angel up on the top, you sprayed down that tree with fake snow from an aerosol can. Now that may sound like a pretty tacky tree, but let me tell you about mine. Mine came out of a box. It was silver. Some of you know that one. And you put it together, and then we had a little color wheel that had four colors, and it spun and it changed the color on the tree. Now that may sound really tacky, but I gotta tell you, back in the 60s, that was way cool. It was beautiful stuff. And once that silver tree or that spray-painted tree 
was up, gifts would begin to magically appear underneath it. Gifts that actually had your name on them. And when no one was around, you would shake those gifts, you would squeeze those gifts, you would hold those gifts up to the light, you would try with your best x-ray vision to see what was underneath that paper. It was exciting. It was a moment of expectation because in a few short weeks, your room was going to be full of brand new stuff. Christmas was all about expectation. And then came Christmas Eve. It was the longest night of the year for some of you. But Christmas Day would be the culmination of weeks of expectation. Now, let's spin back a little further than that. Let's go back 2,000 years ago when some of you were just small children. And let's take a quick look at the Jewish culture. They lived with that same kind of expectation about Christmas, although they didn't know it was Christmas, but they had that same expectation of the coming of what they called the Mashiach, the Messiah. For centuries, God's chosen one had been proclaimed by prophets, and so all of Israel waited with great expectation for his arrival. The day that he would come in, their conquering Messiah, and usher in a brand new kingdom of peace and prosperity and justice. Now, historians tell us that that expectation had reached its fever pitch just about the time when Jesus was actually born. Maybe that's why the Bible said, when the fullness of time had come. And not only were the Jews looking forward to this coming person, other nations believed that a new king was about to be born, and that explains perhaps why the wise men actually took the time and the trouble to come searching for this new, quote, king of the Jews. And as a result of this uh, cultural sense of expectation, every preacher, every prophet who became popular was asked the same question. You heard it in today's text. The question was, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're looking for? And they asked John the Baptist that because, you know, you got a guy wearing camel skin, eating bugs and honey out in the wilderness and preaching some pretty strong stuff. People come out, they hear you. I'm thinking of changing it myself to that. I don't know whether that attracted a crowd or not. But when they asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not. But I can tell you he's coming soon. And by the way, I'm only baptizing you with water. And when he comes, he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, he was saying that when the Messiah came, he would change your heart. He would change your soul. He would change your being. He would fill your spirit with the presence of God. And he would fill your life with passion and with purpose. John was preaching a message of expectation. But he also preached a message of preparation. He preached that the Messiah is on the way, and so it's time to get ready. We also know, though, that John preached a message of repentance. He told his listeners that they needed to get their act together, that they needed to repent of their sins and to be baptized. Now, I've got to tell you something. That was new 
in those days. Repent and be baptized. Now, 2,000 years later, <coughs> in the year 2009, we recognize baptism as an integral part of the Christian tradition. In fact, we're going to have a baptism here later this morning. It's the first step that many of us took in the Christian life. The first century Jews saw it differently, however. Baptism was not a ritual for the Jews. It was a ritual that they thrust upon Gentiles who were converting into Judaism. See, Gentiles needed to be washed because they were considered unclean by the Jews since they had never kept any part of the Judaic law. So baptism represented the washing away of that sinful Gentile nature, making that filthy Gentile a new person and made them kind of an assistant member of the Jewish faith. It was believed, on the other hand, that baptism was not necessary for those who were lucky enough to have been born what? Jewish. They believed that they did not enter the world with that same stain as those filthy Gentiles. They believed that they had a favored nation status with God. And here comes John. And John comes on the scene and he begins preaching, being Jewish is not enough. It'd be like somebody standing up in church today and saying, being Baptist is not enough. Being Lutheran is not enough. Being Presbyterian, in fact, being Catholic is not enough. And once he told them that being a Jew is not enough, he said, you must turn from your sins, which must have been a real shock to the Jews who felt like they didn't have many, if any, and start living a good life, which must have been a shock because they thought they lived a very good life, at least in comparison to people who were not Jewish or Presbyterian or Baptist or Lutheran, whatever you want to plug in there. And to demonstrate that repentance, John challenged his listeners, Jew and Gentile alike, to wade into the Jordan River to receive baptism because it symbolized the end of their old life and a new life in this Messiah. Now, you might be asking yourself already, what's this got to do with Christmas? Well, John the Baptist preached the mess this message. Get ready to receive the Messiah into your life. Get ready to receive the Christ child into your life. And each year at Christmas, we have the opportunity to follow John's message we have the opportunity to get our hearts ready for the coming of this baby Jesus into our lives. Now, understand, if you're a believer, if you're a Christ follower already, he's already in your life. I, I am not talking about being saved all over again. But it's about increasing the power of his presence in your life. Did you get that? It's about increasing the power of of Christ's presence in your life. John the Baptist said he will baptize you with what? With the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's pretty powerful stuff when you think about it. The Christmas season reminds us of the importance of living in expectation, in living in the importance of preparation. He said to these folks, prepare your hearts, get your lives in order 
because the Messiah is coming. Now today, as your pastor, I'm just the person who happens to be fortunate enough to stand up in front of you and say much the same thing. Friends, prepare your hearts. Prepare your life for the presence of Jesus so that he can fill you with his Holy Spirit and with fire and with passion and with purpose and with joy and in life abundant and in life everlasting. That's what Jesus wants to do. Are you ready for it? That's what John was asking. That's what I'm asking you. So in Luke chapter 3, John preaches a sermon to the people who came out to hear him. This is a very unusual sermon. We're going to see that just in a minute. But in this sermon, he tells them three things that they ought to think about in order to get ready. And I want to say the same thing. As you're waiting on God, as you're waiting for Christmas, as you're waiting for the Christ child, whether it's at Christmas time or whether it's in the middle of a a Texas July, there are three key words that can help you always be ready. And here's the very first one. The first word is generosity. Generosity. But what Kevin read to you before from verses 10 and 11, what should we do, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with three tunics, the guys with three coats, should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Now, what's John trying to teach us here? He's not asking anybody to do without. He's just asking us to share from our abundance with those who have nothing. In a small way, that's what the $5 challenge is all about. We're sharing, you've shared from your abundance to First Lutheran, and First Lutheran is sharing from its abundance back to you so you can put it into the lives of other people who may not have nearly as much as you have. Now, I know that there's always people who say, well, I don't have that much to give. That's what I remember Mother Teresa saying one time. If you can't feed 100 people, just feed one. Do what you can. Now, with few exceptions, everyone I know is generous to some extent. I don't know very many people who refuse to ever do anything for anyone at any time. I just don't know people like that. I know you to be generous people already. Nancy and I have been with you for almost, it'll be two years in March, it'll be two years in December we came first to visit you. We know you to be generous people people. But today what I'm doing is challenging you and myself and this church to look for ways to increase your generosity. I'm saying is if you give a certain amount of money to a charitable organization, consider increasing that amount even if it's a little bit. If you volunteer your time or your service to some organization, consider increasing it even if it's just a little bit. Ask yourself, how could I be more generous than I already am? How can I help more people than are already helped. How can I stretch myself to do a little more? I got an email from a pastor friend the other day who challenged me to add a zero to whatever my goals were this year. You think about that one for a moment. He had decided that they were going to try to have about maybe 20 baptisms at their church this year He went to a conference, and the guy said, how about doing a little bit more? Add a zero to that. 20 suddenly becomes what? 200, unless you want to fudge and put the zero in front and a decimal point. I got to thinking, what are my goals for this year in terms of being generous? Could I add a 
zero to it. Boy, there's a challenge, isn't it? Do you know that for about $80 billion a year we could eliminate the conditions of poverty that exist in this world? $80 billion. Everybody, if we had $80 billion, every year we could have clean water and sanitation, basic medical care, basic job training, and the price tag is $80 billion. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of money, but the fact is that if every American Christian would increase their giving to church to a tithe, that's 10%. By the way, the average American gives about 2.5%. That's a very small tithe. It doesn't even count as a tithe. There would be an increase in church income of $90 billion every year. All I'm saying is the church has the economic wealth to wipe out poverty in this world. But for some reason or another, we just don't do it. Now, I'm not saying that to make anybody feel guilty. I'm just challenging you to consider being more generous. Now, here's the amazing thing. You all know Malachi 3.10. I'm sure it's been trotted out at every stewardship service down through the 90 years history of this church. You know, bring the whole tithe, the 10% into my storehouse, into my, into my local place of worship, that there may be food in my house so that we can attend to the ministry of God's word here, there, and everywhere. And God says, test me in this. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Can I share something with you that's a little bit prophetic? I think we are on the verge of that here. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I think God's people have kind of caught on to the idea of what it means to be generous people. And I think God is about to do something really big in this church. The floodgates are about to open. I have no idea what's behind the floodgates. All I'm telling you, you better hold on to your pants. Because when God blesses, it's not that fine little mist that fell this morning on the way to church. It's going to come in a torrent. Here's the second word. It's integrity. He says, tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. That sounds like we should say that to our tax collectors today, the IRS, huh? Then some soldiers came to him and said, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, notice John did not tell the tax collectors to stop being tax collectors. He didn't tell the guys in the army to, to, to quit being in the army. He just said, do your job with integrity. Do the job you're paid to do. Don't take advantage of people. Don't exploit people. See, in care, integrity, which in the Bible means to have a one-piece heart, is, is defined by what you do much more than what you believe. Someone said integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. Now, most of you probably have no idea who Chris Montgomery is. Chris Montgomery is a 19-year-old boy whose part-time job in high school and his freshman year of college was to sweep out the floors at the movie theater between features. One day, as he was cleaning up, he picked up a rather bulky envelope, and when he opened it up, inside was more than $24,000 in cash. 
A business owner had prepared a rather large cash deposit that day and was going to the bank but decided to take her daughter to a movie first. She put it in her purse, but somehow in the movie theater that bundle fell out and she walked away with it. Chris Montgomery found it and did the only thing he knew to do. He turned it in. He gave it back to the woman. Now, I got to tell you, it is pretty rare for anybody to stumble across $24,000 in cash, but I want to tell you, we have the opportunity every day to show Christian integrity. Let's say, for example, that you go out for lunch today and you get your check and you see that the server forgot to add your desserts to the check. What do you do? Start singing, oh, happy day? Or do you say, excuse me, miss, we have a problem here. When you turn in your expense reports or when you do your taxes or when you simply show up at the place God has called you to be in school or your job or wherever, what do you do? I mean, you ask yourself, what can I do to ensure that my Christian walk matches my Christian talk? Living with integrity is an act of preparation. Start looking for ways to increase that commitment. Here's the third word. It's consistency. Now, as you listen to John the Baptist preach, you would find that, you know, John, I tell you, he was not a Toastmaster. He was not trained at Dale Carnegie. When the people came out to hear John the Baptist preach, he did not open with, welcome, friends. We're so glad to have you with us today as a guest in our worship services today. Isn't it a great day? Doesn't everybody love everybody? Anybody remember what he said? You bunch of snakes. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say to yourself, we got Abraham as our father, for I can tell you that God could take these stones and turn them into children of Abraham. For I'm telling you that God can do that. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree, and every tree, and I'm talking about you folks, that does not produce fruit is going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. That's a great, I thought about starting the sermon that way today. You bunch of fork-tongued, sneaky-looking local yahoos. <laughs> the question is, why did he do that? I mean, what a, what a, gosh, he'd be thrown out of the seminary for starting a sermon like that. Why was he so hard on these people. I'm going to give you one reason, and that's because he was talking to a whole bunch of people who thought just because they were who they were, that was enough. Just because they had been born into the Jewish faith was enough. They were better than other people. They had favor with God. There are always people who need to be kind of grabbed by the shirt collar and pulled forward and being told, who you are doesn't count. I don't care whether you were born in this church, whether you were baptized by every pastor who's been here for 90 years. I don't care whether you've been baptized in the ocean every day until every fish knows you by first name. There's something more. It's called a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son. Well, there are also some people who came for 
And there are always people who come for what they call good gospel preaching. But they never put into practice what they hear. Some of you know already that if you come up to me after church and you say, nice sermon, Pastor, anybody know what you probably hear? We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. That may sound odd, but we'll see. I want to know whether they're going to put it into practice. I mean, there are people who flock to churches to hear great preachers or great teachers or to listen to wonderful worship leaders, and they, they come for the entertainment, and they leave without ever confronting the need for change in their lives. So John the Baptist, friends, was just simply saying, quit playing religious games. Quit playing games. Get serious about living your life for God. And then in verse 8, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying the way you prepare your heart for the coming of the Messiah is to practice it, practice being the same person day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. He's saying if you're really serious about turning your life over to God, then you've got to be serious about it every day. Practice consistency. It's the message that I think we need to hear today. It's a message I need to hear. If you're waiting for God to do something in your life, friends, if you're living in the season of expectation, you need to prepare yourself for the blessing that God wants to give you by practicing consistency day by day. This means you don't live by your emotions. You live by your commitments. When you hear a word from God, you follow it. When the Spirit convicts you of your sin, you turn away from it. When you have an opportunity to do good, you take it. Day after day, live with an increasing consistency in your walk with Christ. See, this season is a season of expectation. It's a season of preparation. Christmas reminds us that God comes to us when we need him the most. I don't know about you, but I need him every day. John's message was very simple. He's here. He's among us. Get ready to receive it. See, Jesus, friends, wants to enter your existence as well. He wants to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and he wants to baptize you with fire. If your life somehow feels cold and empty, he wants to fill it with joy and passion. If you feel like your life is going nowhere, he wants to guide you in the path so that you're going somewhere, and that somewhere is called heaven. See, just like he came into a world that needed him, so badly 2,000 years ago, Christ is ready to enter your world too, right now, right here, to prepare your hearts to receive the promises of God and to teach you to prepare your hearts by practicing generosity and integrity and consistency. And may God bless us all in the pursuit of that. In the name of Jesus, amen. On page six of your worship folder is an affirmation of faith. Uh, followed by a closing song. You may have wondered before when uh, I blew out one candle and then we had Logan relight the pink candle why we did that, because each candle has a certain significance for each week, and the pink candle is the candle of rejoicing. And you'll see that word popping up continuously in our affirmation of faith. Let's stand as we speak these words responsively. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice.
Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice. Lost and the Father sent the Son to die and rise again for us. Rejoice. The Spirit enlivens us, restoring us to life. Rejoice in the Lord always. The Lord is near. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, who has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.